so here at Redeemer uh, for this Advent season, for this Christmas season, we've been doing what we call a study in Christology, which is uh, studying who Christ is, who is Jesus, what was so significant about that child born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And we've looked at many really important passages. We've looked at Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 and Philippians chapter 2. And we even looked just briefly at Colossians 1. And all of those passages reveal just glorious truths about the child born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. But no study of Christ would ever be entirely complete without at least briefly addressing the famous John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to them. Um, the text we're looking at is also in the bulletin if you grabbed one, um, but you're also free to just listen and hear the Word of God. Uh, not only is John chapter 1 going to fit well into our overall understanding of who Jesus Christ is and, and, and why He's worthy of the kind of adoration we give Him, especially this time of year, but it's also going to play an important role in helping us to understand the significance of the, the candles and the light theme that we've been doing. And, and as we sing Silent Night together and we light our candles, there's rich symbolism there that this text will help us to understand and appreciate more when we're there. But I, I just first want to remind you that John chapter 1, 1 through 18 is what's known as the prologue of John. And just so you know, it's, it's, it really could uh, uh, enter a competition for the greatest piece of literature the world has ever known. And, and I don't say that hyperbolically. Uh, I, let me just tell you, this is a sermonette, so I'm not going to be preaching nearly as long as I normally do on a Sunday morning. And even if I were preaching as long as I were on a Sunday morning, I would never have the time to exhaust this text. We are just going to be scratching the surface of this text. It is quite literally epic. In, in, in more ways than one, um, but we are going to get enough out of it to adore Jesus today, this evening, and to, again, help us to appreciate our candlelight theme more specifically. John chapter 1, many of you, uh, likely, if you've grown up in the Christian faith, probably even have this memorized. Uh, we're going to focus primarily just on the first five verses and I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, have your bulletin, or you're listening, to read along carefully or listen attentively, for these are the very words of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John begins his gospel in a familiar way to the Jewish audience in the beginning, which would have immediately brought his Jewish readers' attention to the opening of our Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John begins his gospel slightly differently. He says, in the beginning, was the word. This phrase, in the beginning, it comes from a Greek word, arche, and arche, and, and it's a difficult word to render into English. 
It's just packed with meaning. We don't really have a, a single English word or, or, or a brief phrase that really does it justice. The word, Greek word arche, it's where we get words like architecture from. It's where we get like, the, when you hear someone talk about the moral arc of a story, it comes from this concept. But in the Greek, this word arche, it, it's not indicating that it has, um, that there was a beginning to God or that there was a beginning to whatever the word is that John mentions. But the word arche, it, 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 it tells us, it tells its readers that there was an eternity here and God was present there. The word is, is, is literally saying as far back into eternity as you want to go, the word is there. Right? Even in Genesis 1, when it says in the beginning God created, it's not saying that God came into being in that point. It's just simply saying as far back as eternity goes, God was there and he created. In the same way that in the beginning, in eternity past was the word. And again, if you've grown up in the Christian faith, uh, you probably know that Greek word that's underneath what our English Bibles render the word there. And it's the Greek word logos. In the beginning was the logos. Now, uh, in one sense, this was a peculiar word for John to use because logos doesn't have a very specific meaning. It's not talking necessarily about a very specific person or a specific idea. It's quite literally, it's a huge word loaded with meaning. But it was important for John to use it. And the reason is because this word carried incredible meaning to both his Jewish and his Greek audience. Any Jewish or Greek person reading this text would have honed in on that word and found that word to be significant. For the Hebrew people, the word had an incredible significance because, and we've talked about this, uh, if, you, if you go to Redeemer on Sundays before, because of what we call the Greek Septuagint. And what was the Greek Septuagint? Well, just by way, way of reminder, at this time in history, uh, the Gentile people have sort of overtaken the Jewish people. And so now the Jews have been dispersed and they are being uh, enculturated by a foreign culture. And so because of that, Jews are now starting to speak Greek. Uh, they had a, what we call a Hellenistic influence, which means many Jews during the time that John was writing were Greek-speaking Hebrews. And so what happened before Jesus uh, even showed up on the scene was a group of Jewish academics and Jewish rabbis got together and they decided so many of our people are speaking Greek and our, our religion is now getting into the Greek world that they need a Bible that they can understand. So they took the Hebrew old Bible and they translated it into Greek. So when we talk about the Septuagint, we're talking about a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's important to know because if someone were to just say off, off the cuff, like, well, the Greek and the Old Testament, that would be potentially bizarre because the Old Testament wasn't written in Greek, it was written in Hebrew. But because of this translation, the Septuagint, and, and it's really very, um, very it, was, it was prominent in the culture, and we know that because the Septuagint in the New Testament is what's quoted by our New Testament authors. Jesus quoted from the Septuagint, the apostles quoted from the Septuagint. So this was a widely used translation. And so what it did is it gave us the Hebrew scriptures in the Greek language. And so this Greek word logos is found all over the Hebrew Greek Septuagint. The Old Testament in Greek is filled with this word. And every time it's used, it's always used to speak of the mouthpiece of God. 
It's used to speak of the word of God. The word of the Lord came forth. Hear the word of the Lord. Or an angel appeared delivering the word of the Lord. The Greek word that would have been used, that is used there, is the word logos. So to the Jewish people, when they see the word logos, they see God's revelation. They see God speaking. The word of God. And notice how John then uses it for them. He tells them that in the beginning was the Word, and that is exactly who we're going to see the text identify as Jesus. That is exactly who Jesus ends up being. For example, you can read along with me in verse 18. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side has made him known. The word has taken the God that nobody has seen and he has made him known. You see, it was the word, it was Jesus, it was his job to proclaim to us who the Father is. That's why Jesus throughout the gospel says things like, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. He says things like, I have not come to speak my own words, but to only speak that which my Father in heaven has given me. You see, Jesus is the word of God. He is the full expression of God. And that's all communicated just in the first half of the first verse. But it's more than that because, as we said, logos carried significant meaning, not just to the Hebrew people, but to the Greeks as well. And what did logos mean for the Greeks? Well, if we were to take this as like a history lesson and go way back, way before Jesus we would already see Greek philosophy start discussing this concept of the logos. Most people, unless you're, unless you're some kind of like academic historian, uh, you might know the Greeks for lots of things, but I would say to the, to the lay person, to the lay historian, when we think of ancient Greek culture, we, we typically think of two things, the Olympics and philosophy. Right, like that's what the Greeks were kind of known for today, the Olympics and philosophy. Philosophy was everything to the Greeks. And there are famous philosophers that we still study in in secular schools today, like Heraclitus and Plato. And and it's just amazing how much Greek philosophy has influenced Western culture. Oh, you'd be amazed. Thousands and thousands of pages have been written on that very issue. And the Greeks were discussing philosophy. As a matter of fact, you can read, we won't turn there today, but in Acts chapter 17, there were schools of thought that had developed in the first century. Um, there was what was called Epicurean philosophy, and there was Stoic philosophy, and these trace back to men like Plato and Aristotle and things like that. And Paul actually has a debate with the Epicureans and with the Stoics. And throughout Acts chapter 17, Paul actually debates these schools of thought. So Greek philosophy ruled the day in the ancient world. It was the highest of the high in terms of skilled academic rigor. These were the the smartest, brainiest men on earth you could speak of in, in, in some sense. And the word logos was an incredibly important word to Greek philosophy. It was essentially the foundation of Greek philosophy. Time won't permit us to go into much detail about it, but just to briefly uh, fill you in, the word logos was, was seen by Greek philosophers as, as the, the presence that held the universe together. It was seen as the consciousness or the soul of the universe. The Greek philosophers would study the world and they said, the world and the universe has such an orderly, consistent 
uh, nature to it, that it's a lot like a human mind. It's logic, it's consistent, it's, it's, it's upheld, it's governed, it's predictable. And that's why our English word logic comes from the word logos. They saw it as being the source and the creator of the universe. They saw it as holding the universe together. They saw the logos as being the source of human beings and of our reasoning faculties. They saw the logos as being this mysterious, universal, eternal foundation of all observable universe. And guess what? That's exactly who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter one tells us that he created all things and that by the word of his power, he upholds all things. Jesus is the one holding the universe together. It is his image that we see in people around us. Romans chapter one talks about how his very creation screams and proves his very existence so that all men are without excuse. Jesus is the source of the universe. He is the source of human reason. He is the one who upholds and created the universe. He is the grand consciousness over all that we see. So you see, John could not have picked a better word for his audience. He's saying the word of God that the Jews so admired and the logos, the the, the Greek philosophy that the Greeks so admire, you have found your answer in Jesus. And specifically, that Jesus, that word, that logos, was in the beginning. He is the eternal logos. But the text continues, the word was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. I've kind of already presupposed who the word is. John hasn't yet identified him specifically as Jesus But what we see here is this word, the logos, remember we talked about this, is a very general word with a a wide ranging of meanings. But here, John begins to narrow his definition of what the word was because it says that the word was in existence with God. So you see, John is not talking about some abstract principle of philosophy. He's not talking about an idea. He's talking about something, someone who's able to have personal relationship. As a matter of fact, that that little word with is used in 1 Corinthians 15, and there it's translated face to face. And and, and in 1 Corinthians 15, it's used to discuss when Jesus returns for a second time, Paul says, then we shall know him face to face. In other words, when Jesus returns, we will have the kind of relationship that John is describing he had with God. So the word is not some abstract concept, it's a personal being. It's somebody who was with God in the beginning, face to face with God. And so what that tells us is that there's some distinction that we have to make between the word and God. It wouldn't make sense to say, I'm with myself. It wouldn't make sense to say, I marry myself or I'm dating myself. Jesus, forgive me, the word was in relationship with God. So there was some kind of distinction between the two. And and, and you think that's easy for us to get. But the reason it's difficult is because what does the very next part, not not the next verse, not not somewhere in the Old Testament or somewhere in the New Testament, the very next part of the sentence the word was a personal, was a person who was with God and the word was God. 
Now, if you were to look at this in the Greek, you would see that what, what John is not saying is that the word was with the Father and the word was the Father. There's actually a difference in the second God that we see. In, if you've ever encountered a Jehovah's Witness, they make a big deal of this difference. A bigger deal than needs to be made. But really what, what John is saying here is that this word, this person, personal word, was in relationship with God the Father in all eternity, but he was also divine. This was not an angel. This was not a human. This was not a creature. This was not a demigod. This was not an abstract concept. There was God, a divine being in relationship with God. This word was with God, but he was also divine. We have a fully divine person in relationship for all eternity with God. And all of that is in the first verse of John chapter 1. The first verse that for all eternity a divine person existed with the Father and was fully divine. And how do we know that I'm talking about God the Father here? Am I imposing that on the text? No. Because remember what we saw in verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. At the, the Father's side. So as we work through just the first verse, we know that God, is, we can replace that with the Father. And that the one who is at the Father's side is God, or as verse 18 says, is the only God. So get this, a monotheistic Jew, a Jewish person who believed there was only one God, is telling us that in eternity past, there were two persons who were both fully God in relationship, and there's only one God. And again, that's just in the first verse. But then John begins to narrow his definition of the Logos even further. Verse 2, he this personal masculine person. Again, not a concept, not an abstract thought, not just the voice of God. A personal aspect, a personal person, a, a he. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse three, he says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. A few important things to say. So again, we see the, the personal nature that this logos is a he, this logos is a person, and this logos is active, capable of making his own decisions. How do we know that? Well, because he did something. And that's, that's putting it lightly. He did something. What did he do? He created everything. That's what he did. So now all the Jewish readers, when they read this, they're thinking back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1-1 told us that the God that they served, Yahweh, the one and only God, the only God there is, according to the Old Testament, that God made the heavens and the earth. And now they're being told, by the way, guess who that God was? It was the God at God's side. Jesus, the Logos. It was Jesus, the person of Jesus, who made all things. They were made through him. The Father used him as his instrument to make all things. And, and, and John really goes out of his way to clarify this. Because it says, and without him was not anything made that was made. So again, this reinforces what? That the Logos is eternal. 
There are many people today who want to proclaim to the Christian church and try to convince the Christian church that the Logos is a created being. Whether he was created in eternity or whether he was created at Bethlehem, they want us to believe that the Logos was created at some point in history. But the problem with that is the Logos is the creator of all created things. So how does the Logos create himself? No, you see, the Logos pre-existed all created things in order to create all created things. So how do you, what do we take away from this? The Logos is eternal. He has no beginning and no end, which is exactly what Jesus Christ claims for himself. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha and the omega. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then if you will look down at verse 14 for a moment, notice what he says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So there we finally have John identifying by name what I've been presupposing this whole time. Who is the word? He is the son. He is Jesus. And who is the God that he was with? He is the father who sent him. And what did Jesus do? He took on flesh. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. He entered into his own creation. He took upon himself the humanity that he had been creating and he dwelt, he tabernacled among us. And so that is who we celebrate at Christmas time. Who was that baby born in Bethlehem? He's the eternal Logos, the creator of all created things, the one who had a perfect relationship with God for all eternity. He's the one who entered into human history by taking on flesh and blood just as we have. And so we see that Jesus Christ is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our love. He is beyond our comprehension, glorious and majestic and wonderful. But there's something in this text that is really, really important for us in terms of a candlelight service that we will transition to now. And that is, notice what the text says in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. How do we think of the incarnation? We think of the incarnation as being life and light. The Logos, the Word who came and dwelt among us, He brought life with Him, and that life can also be thought of as light. The incarnation was the birth of light, light breaking through darkness. And this makes sense because this is a theme that is just covered in incarnational texts all throughout Scripture. For just to give one example, we read uh, the, the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 this great prophecy of unto us a son is given, a child shall be born, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, that text. How did that text begin? The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. All throughout Scripture, Jesus, the incarnation, his appearance is described as this, this motif and this metaphor of light breaking through darkness. 
Jesus makes it explicit as he can in John chapter 8. This is another well-known passage among Christian communities. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We see that taken right from John chapter 1. Jesus came to be the light of the world. And so that is why we do candles that's why one of, my favorite, one of my favorite parts of the Christmas season is seeing lights on houses. And when's the best time to go look at lights? Have you, I'm sure at some point in your life, maybe you've done it this season, maybe at some, you've done it as a child. When you go looking for lights, when you go drive, driving in the neighborhood and seeing who put up the best lights, how many of you go at noon? How many of you go at six in the morning? You go at nighttime. You go when it's dark because it's in that darkness that the light shines through. It breaks that darkness. And that is the metaphor, that is the image Scripture gives us for the coming of Jesus Christ, that our world was dark. Spiritually, it was dark. It was a broken, fallen world filled with rebellious, idolatrous, sinful people. With no hope. That's how Colossians, or forgive me, that's how Ephesians describes us. You who were once alienated from God and without hope in the world. It was a hopeless, dark place. Until we heard the cries of that baby in Bethlehem. And his cries were a beam of light that pierced through the darkness. And it promised us, as the prophecies say, that that light will continue to increase, that that light will continue to grow until all the darkness is cast out. As we just saying, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He has come to shine his light in every crevice to push out all darkness. He has come with everlasting life. He has come with a kingdom. He has come with the forgiveness of sins. And it is that that he is illuminating our world. He is the light of the world. And all who put their faith and trust and follow him will not walk in darkness, but will walk in light. They will have everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because of what his ministry and his kingdom has accomplished for his father's glory. But there's something else we also need to understand just briefly before we finally press on. And and that comes from a text which brings up maybe a little bit of attention in this. And it's Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he first, by, by speaking to his people, he tells them that they're the salt of the earth. And then he takes that same idea and and makes a new metaphor for it. And what does the light of the world, the one who came with light and life, who does the light of the world say? What does the light of the world say to us? He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So who's the light? The scriptures speaking out of both sides of the mouth? 
Jesus is the light, but it is because of our union with the light. Because Jesus, the life that he brings through his gospel, that gospel is transferable. It's something that we can believe. It's something we can understand. It's something we can live out. It's something we can share. So Jesus is this inexhaustible light that catches fire to his people as we then turn and go throughout the world and bring his light to everyone else. So he is the light and then we are the light because of our union with him. Jesus, his gospel, his ministry, his death on the cross is light to our dark world and we are the ambassadors, we are the ministers of that ministry and so by that we light our torches and we take them into the darkness. And it's in that sense that we are the light of the world. And so that's what we are reminded of when we do this candle lighting. In a minute, I'm going to light it and give us some instructions and we're going to sing Silent Night together. But this Christ candle is light which has broken into our room and I can put as many candles up to that as I want and the flame is just going to keep giving. The light of Jesus Christ does not stop with a certain amount of people. He can't run out of gospel to give. He can't run out of eternal life to give. All who come to Christ receive his light. And then after uh, the light of Christ ignites this candle, then we will symbolically pass it along and we will light each other's candle as a symbol of how we take the light of Christ and then we become the light of the world and we pass it and spread it to our world and to our community. And so that is what we are going to do. I will light this and then I will begin to light the candles in front of me. And just one quick reminder, this is just important for safety. Uh, If your candle is lit, then you should not be the one to turn your candle to the other person's. Go ahead and hold yours still and then the person with the unlit candle will take their candle to yours. But Layla, would you mind um, hitting the lights for us? Just to, although we're still going to have some light peeking in the hallways, we, to make this as symbolic as possible, we are going to turn off the lights. And I would ask you to stand, and then we will begin to light our candles together. And we are going to sing Silent Night once we get started.